0: Hi
1: folks, this is Jack Spearco with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life, if times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is July the 16th, 2012, and this is episode 942 of the Survival Podcast. Today is Monday, 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 and that means it's time for your emails that you've sent to me over the past week to jack at com. If you'd like to submit material, a question, a comment, an article, a video, anything like that for a show like that, uh, for a show like this to me, I do these once a week again, uh, you can send the email again to jack@thesurvivalpodcast.com, and the best way to make sure that I'll get and uh, take a look at what you've sent me is to put article for Jack or comment for Jack or question for Jack. Three words, put something before the words for Jack and it will end up in my queue for review. I get hundreds and hundreds a day so only a small fraction actually get on the air but I try to take the stuff that comes in from a lot of people or that's unique or new or that we haven't talked about before and put that in priority. But if you keep sending me stuff sooner or later, you'll probably hear your stuff on the air. Uh, Before we get to that, though, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you. Sponsor of the day number one today is Fortress Defense Consultants. Fortress Defense Consultants is run by Frank Sharp Jr. and his cadre of instructors, and they do a great job at making sure that not only can you be an armed citizen, but a responsible, well-trained, and proficient armed citizen. They'll also teach you how to not just take life in the event of a situation where it's warranted, but how to save life, if you're going to walk around with the capability to take life, you, have to, you need to really uh, bring up your responsibility to be able to provide life-saving aid as well. It's a clear case of rights and responsibilities going with each other, so check them out today fortress defense consultants next up today jeff the berkey guy gleason he is the berkey guy so what are you gonna get from him i know it might be shocking to find this out but the berkey guy sells berkey water filtration systems but you can get a berkey anywhere i mean you really can why go get berkeys from jeff why not go to the gun show and see the guy that just started selling them yesterday there that set up a distributorship or whatever because he's the berkey guy I mean, why would you go to anybody but the Berkey guy when the Berkey guy's right there waiting for you? And the Berkey guy supported the show that you listen to now for over three and a half years. And the Berkey guy constantly takes care of customers. I just got an email uh, that I was copied on uh, that was sent to Jeff because they people ordered a couple of the sport Berkeys and they were packaged in an envelope and the post office damaged them. And uh, Jeff took care of it. He told the guy, "You yeah, know, I'm sorry this happened." Let me make it right. Here's a couple more. That's why you go to the Berkey guy. Because the guy at the gun store or gun gun show or whatever, or the guy that started yesterday, right, is probably not going to do that for you. Plus you're going to get great service. Plus if you check out directive21.com, that's directive21.com, his website, you'll find not just Berkeys, but some other really cool stuff for your prep. So check him out today. Supports us, takes care of us, has the staying power, and when something's broken, he fixes it. That's why you're going to go to the Berkey guy and not anybody else. Next up today, remember, if you want to uh, kind of give yourself a little bit of diversity with your metals without spending a lot of money, have a new barter implement, have a way to share things that's cheap and uh, affordable enough to give some away, check out TSP Copper. We have some really cool copper barter medallions. They're all uh, AOCS value 2 and the AOCS Barter Network, and they have really cool things that you can share with other people like beekeeping, like the Real Truth About Money and the Survival Podcast, like Ron Paul and the Constitution and the Second Amendment. Cool stuff, man. Check it out. TSPcopper.com Remember, if you're MSB, you get a 10% discount on all your copper purchases at TSPcopper.com Dot .com last but not least consider joining the member support brigade do that you'll get exclusive content available only to members military law enforcement peace corps uh peace corps and other first responders like paramedics email me before you join some guy just emailed me and went I served in the national guard for 5 years does that count as military uh-huh. Yeah, I think so. There's, and I gave him his discount code. Discount code for military and first responders is a thank you for your service to our country. Uh, if you want that, email me. Put service discount in the subject line and email me at jackatthesurvivalpodcast.com. Just tell me who you are and what you're doing or who you are and what you did if your prior service. And I will uh, thank you for your service by giving you a special discount code that's only for people that have served in those capacities. With that, I've got everything wrapped up. Before I get into your first email, though, and it is a doozy, uh, I want to remind you again... July 27th and 28th, I will be featured keynote speaker and expert panel member at the Self Reliance Expo in Arlington, Texas at the Arlington Convention Center. Uh, I will be doing the expert panel discussion on, uh, let's see, it will be Friday the 27th around 12, 12.30, something like that, 11.30, somewhere in the, I don't remember the time slot exactly, but there'll be a link in today's show notes with more information. And then on Saturday, I'll be the keynote speaker, kickoff speaker, first guy going up. Uh, to talk about 12 Planks of Modern Survivalism. And if you're a TSP listener, you can get in early, a half hour early, meet me, Meet Jackie Clay, meet Marjorie Wildcraft, meet Doc Bones, meet Nurse Amy. By the way, those of you who don't know who Jackie Clay, is, she is a longtime columnist for Backwoods Home magazine. She's been helping people get ready and prepare and be self-reliant for a, a, I don't know how long, honestly, but I know I was reading Backwoods Home at least 15 years ago, if not longer, and Jackie Clay was writing for them back then. So she's done a lot to help people. She'd be a cool lady for you guys to meet. And I set that up for you with the self-reliance expo You guys get in the door early uh, and you come on in. You get a seat so you can get a good seat for my presentation. You get to meet these other cool people and you get to hang out with each other when everybody else is still waiting to get in. That's what I do for the audience. I take care of you guys. And, hey, big thanks to Ron and uh, Scott for, for setting that up for us, too, by the way. So come on out to the Self-Reliance Expo. Even if you can't make it early, I'll be there pretty much all day, Friday and Saturday. I'll be making myself available, and they're going to have like a, a press tent or something like that. I'll make myself available. As we get closer, I'll figure out what times I'm going to be there. I'll post it. While I'm at the show, I'll tweet and Facebook, hey, I'm in the tent right now. You guys can come on by, and we'll do some kind of uh, go get a beer or something after hours as well. All right. With that all wrapped up, will wrap up. Let's get into the first email. Like I said, it's kind of a doozy. This comes to me from Adam. And Adam says, Here's an article about turning, turning part of Honduras into a libertarian community. This seems more, like a, more of an attainable goal than building a platform in the ocean. It also sounds similar to what the Chinese want to do in Idaho without the communism. How do you think the Honduran people will feel about this? And it's an article called Free Cities, Honduras Shrugged. I guess they're playing off Atlas Shrugged. Let me read a little bit of it to you. Um, Disgusted by an increasingly invasive state, America's most capable entrepreneurs retreat to Galt's Gulch, a libertarian commune. That was the theme of Ayn Rand's magnum opus, Atlas Shrugged, a sacred text for libertarians ever since it was published in 1957. Actually creating such an enclave has been a dream of many fans of small government, or none at all. Several have had a try at it, but their efforts have always ended in disaster. See the table below. So uh, there's a table there you can look at. I'm not going to read it on air. We'll continue on with the article. And there's some stuff up there like the Atlantis Project, uh, Free State Project, which I don't think has ended in disaster. In fact, I sponsor them instead of them sponsoring me because I believe in what they're doing. They just haven't gotten to where they're going yet. Freedom Ship, some other stuff, uh, Republic of Minerva. Anyway, back to the article. Now, for the first time, libertarians have a real chance to implement their ideas. In addition to a big special development region, the Honduran government intends to approve two smaller zones, and two libertarian-leaning startups have already signed a preliminary memorandum of understanding with the Honduran government to develop them. One firm goes by the name of Future Cities Development Corporation. It was co-founded by Patry Friedman, a grandson of Milton Friedman, a noble laureate in economics, and until recently executive director of the Seasteading Institute, a group producing research on how to build ocean-based communes. Uh, The other is called Grupo Ciudades Libris, Libris, Free Cities Group, and it's a brainchild of Michael Strong and Kevin Lyons, two entrepreneurs and libertarian activists. Both share a purpose to build free cities. Last April, all three spoke at a conference organized by Universidad uh, Francisco Marquin, a libertarian outfit in Guatemala. In September, they and Gucalo Ibochanac, Put you that guy's name as best I can do. Uh, the university's president launched Free Cities Institute, a think tank to foster the cause. So you can read the rest of the article if you want to. It's quite long, so I'll cut off there, but I want to give you my thoughts on this. Number one, I can actually see a lot of South American, Central American nations snapping to this idea. Imagine if you were uh, a country like Honduras, and Honduras is Got some stuff going for it, but it's got a lot going against it. It's a tough country to live in. Even people that are considered okay off or, or fairly well off live way below the standard that you would expect to live in America with a, a poverty-level income. It's, it's tough. There's a lot of places with no services. Uh, there's not really a good understanding of agriculture other than a few banana plantations. Um, there's a lot of potential... But not a lot of skill set availability and not a lot of resource ability to utilize the potential that's there. There's some fabulously wealthy people that have little places in Honduras that are, I mean, Fantasy Island I think was actually filmed on a little island off the coast of Honduras. So there is some beauty there, but it's a tough, dusty place. Uh, I wish I would have thought about doing this. I have a poem that I wrote. Uh, called Team Honduras uh, 90, 92, I think was the year I was there, or Team, team Honduras 91, whatever year it was I was there, and uh, about and I would read it to you, the, just the harshness of the environment. And maybe I'll do that in a future show for you guys. I'll bring that in because I don't remember it by heart or anything. Uh, but the ticks and the dust and yet the beauty that's there. So if you are one of these nations and you could say to people all over the world, generally people who are wealthy, uh, maybe, you know, people like me would be ideal. Because I don't, if you give me a DSL connection and I can buy a house and I can have a little piece of land and do my permaculture thing, I don't give a damn where I live, honestly. I mean, for me personally, it wouldn't work. You know, you guys know I'm trying to move back to Texas, uh, right now and, and get closer to family and all. But I mean, if I didn't have the family attachment, what a great idea. Uh, if I could get them to go with me, what an even better idea. Just, I don't have very few libertarians in my family. Um, but a person that even has a moderate income, you know, a person that, that earns, you know, upper middle class income for the U.S. in Honduras, that's a lot of money. That's a tremendous amount of money. And to get skilled people, knowledgeable people, hardworking people, and just open the doors and say, if you want to come in, here's the, here's the criteria, meet these criteria, come on in, you can live in this area that we've set up for you, and, and you guys run it. You, we're gonna stay out of your face. Um, the amount of wealth that could be brought into these impoverished, impoverished nations would be, uh, unbelievable. And if they then took these cities and said, "Hey, wait a minute, this is working for them, so let's emulate it. They could turn around entire countries down there, Honduras, Guatemala, uh, you know, I can think of a lot of nations that, that I've spent time in that this would work really well for. if and this is the gamble, once you go into these countries like this asy this free city, you're there at the pleasure of the government hosting you. And they might make an agreement with you, but we all know governments tend to break agreements. If you doubt that, ask a Native American Indian, and he'll tell you about treaties and how those work out for you. All right, So it would only be a matter of time before in these impoverished nations, there's, gonna be, there's always going to be poverty. This is what people don't realize. We can't make all poverty go away. Uh, unless we find limitless energy and limitless resources in the Star Trek theology ever comes to be, there's going to be poor, there's going to be middle class, there's going to be wealthy. The poor, the the key with the poor uh, and to make poor function is that poor needs to be a place you can leave. There needs to be an upward mobility so that people can get out of the, the impoverished class. And then that way you don't have a, a, a huge population in poverty and they don't eventually revolt and then put somebody else in charge that just keeps them poor. There's got to be a way out. So if this is done the right way, then it becomes a blueprint for the entire nation. If it's not done that way, if it's done completely in isolation, so instead of like sending representatives there, hiring locals to do certain things, being part of the community but having your own autonomy, kind of being like a mini-state within a, with a larger state, almost like a, a federation, right? A, or a confederation agreement between the host nation and the little island republic that's inside of it. Um If that's done that way, you can spread this, and you can make these countries extremely, extremely successful. If it's done in isolation, it's only a matter of time before the little pockets become very, very successful. They have lots of stuff and lots of money and lots of wealth, and all the poor people in the nation go, where's the stuff we were promised? And they end up taking you over. And t- you know, nationalizing free, you know, freehonduras.com or whatever all the place is going to be called. So I think it's 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 you know it has to be gone into from a perspective of yes, we want the liberty and freedom and, and we want you to leave us alone. And as long as we're not you know you know burning babies at the stake or something, we want you to stay the hell out of our business uh, and let this be the libertarian community that you're promising us. But we won't do it in isolation. We'll share what works with us. With works for us, with you, we'll let your citizens come in here and and, and and get jobs and even become members of the community as long as they meet the criteria as being able to take care of themselves. So there'll be no welfare in here, but there'll be a promotion of the welfare of the of the state. Got it? Right. Remember that promote the general. Where did I hear promote the general welfare, not provide welfare for? Where did I hear that? You know where I heard that. So I think this is awesome. Now, how would the people of Honduras feel about it? From my interaction with the people of Honduras, which was for six months and was 20-some years ago, I think that they would welcome it. I know that when I was there serving in the military, that we had great relations with the Native people, and they were some of the most hardworking people that just want an opportunity to make something happen that I've ever seen in my life. So I think there's a tremendous opportunity with something like this, but will it be realized? I don't know. And I think that if I were doing this, I would be going to every freaking country that would make a good landing spot. And I'd be making the countries compete with each other. So I could bring them in, man. I can bring them in. I can make this happen. Who's going to give us the biggest piece of land, the most autonomy, the most protection from the outside, make it the easiest for people to come here? Let us come up with screening criteria. As long as we're not criminals, you know, we want people to be able to get a passport and come here and get basically residency off bat. Because here's the thing: if you want people to come put down roots, they got to know they're able to stay there. Um, I think that it would be absolutely outstanding, and I think that only uh, you know only another nation today can stand up and do this. It's kind of what people are trying to do with New Hampshire, but they're trying to take the whole state. I think if uh, if I wanted to do this domestically, I'd pick a county. I would pick a county. I'd pick a sparsely populated county. Uh, if I was gonna do anything in the ni- United States, that's what I would do. I'd pick like you know some county with about you know. 5,000 people in it and try to move 5,000 people there. Guess what, guys? We're taking over the county government and the city government and everything else and we're going to start telling the state to go take a hike and if they don't like it, tough crap. Uh, We're going to do it under a county charter. I mean, that's, I think that would be a much more effective thing uh, to move faster domestically and, you know, New Hampshire wouldn't be a bad state to do it in because then you kind of branch out to your next county. That's that's the way I would have done this. Anyway, uh, just my thoughts on it. Interesting article. You can take a look at it at your leisure. link will be at the survivalpodcast.com. This next one comes in from Patrick, and it's uh, another look at the uh, crisis in Europe. And it says, This is reality. Spain spa- slashes spending and raises, sev- uh, raises taxes in a $79 billion austerity plan. Uh, Madrid, Spain announced a 65 billion euro or 79.85 billion dollar austerity package that includes tax hikes and spending cuts on Wednesday, a day after it won approval from Euro partners for a huge bailout of the country's stricken banks. Prime Minister Mariano Rajoy told Parliament the country's future was at stake as Spain grapples with recession, a bloated deficit, an investor wariness of its sovereign debt. He said that nearly 80 billion in savings will be achieved through 2015 by a hike in sales taxes and a series of spending cuts through 2015. "Quote: We are living in a crucial moment which will determine our future and that of our families, that of our youth, and that of our and of our and our welfare state. Of our welfare state. Well, that's a great mentality to be in. It. This is reality. There is no other." And we have to get out of this hole, and we have to do it as soon as possible, and there is no room for fantasies or uh, off-the-cuff improvisations because there is no choice, he added. Spain's unemployment rate is more than 24% overall and 50% for young people. What motivates us is the 5 million people out of work, the BBC News quoted Rajoy as saying. Wednesday's increase in sales tax include a hike to 21% on products and services like clothing, cars, cigarettes, telephone services uh, to 21% and increase up to 10% on goods such as public transport fares, processed foods, and bar and hotel services. The sales tax on all basic goods like bread, medicine, and books stays at 4%. The increases were widely expected, but go against campaign pledges Rajoy made before he was elected in November, and since he came to power. So it means that in Spain they have politicians that promise one thing and get elected and do something else, just like we do. Here's the bigger story on the front page of this story on World News uh, on NBCNews.com. Right there is a, a Spanish lady. That looks pretty roughed up. Her hair is all frazzled. She's got blood in her face. She looks very angry and very upset. And this is what the caption reads. An injured protester shouts as she is detained by riot police during clashes between supporters of Spanish coal miners and riot police in Madrid on Wednesday. So, this is what, basically, here's the bigger lesson. When the government cuts benefits, people get pissed off and go to the streets and start Burning shit down, breaking shit, smashing shit. They just generally go freaking nuts. So, this is your future. Okay? This is the future of America right here. There will come a day. There will come a day when you'll hear a giant pop. Right? It'll be like pop. And you'll go, what was that? It will be the collective heads being pulled out of collective asses all over the United States of America at the same time. Pop. And that will be the head comes out of the ass, they're no longer completely an asshat, and they'll look at the numbers and go, huh, we're screwed. We've got to do the same thing that's being done elsewhere in the world. We've got to cut benefits. We've got to increase taxes. Now, do we have to increase taxes? No, but that's what they'll do. That's what they'll do. What they have to do is cut Spending. We're taxed enough. If you would only spend what you tax us and only do what you can do with what you have, you would be able to balance the budget freaking tomorrow. Yes, some people who do nothing for a living would actually have to get up off their ass and do something. No, we wouldn't take away the actual safety nets because people that are actually incapable of working would be able to still be provided for. If we look at all the people being given shit and say, who can and who can't, the can't pile is much bigger than the can but doesn't want to pile. That's reality. But so, that's such a small piece. See, they always do this with austerity. They cut the what they call benefits. And again, I don't think we should call most things the government does for people a benefit. A benefit's something you're entitled to that you've earned. If you work your ass off and you collect Social Security to me, that is, okay, that's a benefit. Right? Because you paid in, you get what you paid in back plus what you were promised, which is some interest. You've earned it. It's a benefit. Being given unemployment is a benefit. You work your ass off and it runs out. It's insurance, right? Being on welfare, getting free government this and government that and a free phone and all this other crap that they give people and food stamps and all, these are not benefits. These are gifts taken at gunpoint from your fellow taxpayers. So they'll go there first and they'll cut the stuff. that They'll actually cut the benefits rather than a taxpayer providing gifts at gunpoint. They'll cut Social Security. They'll cut Medicare. They'll cut Medicaid. They'll cut the things that people actually uh, earned first, and, and then they'll leave most of the stuff that's being taken away, and they'll call it the only thing we can do. Where we can look at, you want to make some cuts? I know this is going to sound anti-America, but it's not. Look at the Department of Defense. See, if we cut defense spending by 50%, cut it in half, oh my God, we'd still be spending more than any nation on the planet on defense spending. So there's you know a little bit of money. There's a little bit of money that we could you know use to pay down debt and balance our books. And we don't have to cut it by fifty percent. I'm just making a point with that. We could cut it by twenty percent tomorrow just by cutting waste out and certain things that we don't really need to be doing. We do not need multi-billion dollar aircraft carriers to fight terrorists in the mountains of Afghanistan. We really do not. It's not what we need to be able to do that and. We can make a case whether we should be doing that in the first place. It's not to be. It's it, This is your future right now. All you have to do is look at Greece and Spain and Italy. Pay attention to what's going on over there. Watch how it evolves, and you're going to get it here. But it's going to be worse because we have a bigger entitlement attitude in this country, a much bigger one. We have a lot more guns and crime and violence and street gangs and thugs, right? And there will be much bigger rioting here when this stuff happens. So this is part of what we need to be prepared for for our future. And people in Europe are getting it. I just saw a story on RT today, on Russia Today. And uh, it's not up on their site yet where I can uh, play it for you on the air. It's only a couple of minutes. I wanted to play it for you. Again, they don't have it up yet. Uh, but here's the deal. Um, what they're, What they have going on over there is people starting to do what we're doing, moving out into the country, setting up alternative energy, storing up food, becoming prepared for an economic collapse. There was a guy in Austria today doing it. I thought it was a really cool story. Uh, hopefully, they'll put it up on the site, and I'll be able to play it for you guys on the air in the future. Uh, let's take another one. I've been talking a lot lately about something called downward class migration, and it's something that I think a lot of people misunderstand. I did a whole video on it. I'll put a link to that video up today so you can get a better understanding of it so I don't have to go deep into it today, and we can get the show done in a reasonable amount of time. Uh, but what downward class migration, is the basics of it is not... People falling from the middle class to the lower middle class, or from the upper middle class to the middle class, or from the middle class to the you know the the the, the poverty class, or what have you. It's the entire class structure falling. And this article, and I told you that the media would start to catch on to this when I started talking about it over a year ago. That it would be next year or two. They would, and as usual, Jack's right about something like this. Um, here's the, the headline: Most Americans earn more than their parents. But a third, only a third, rise in income class study says, the overwhelming majority of Americans still make more money than their parents. But upward mobility is elusive for many, particularly for African Americans, those without a college degree. According to a new study released Monday, they always put that in there, college degree. Bullshit. I know plenty of people with college degrees waiting tables. I mean, just, uh, you just want to smack these people, but they, they are speaking mostly the truth here. So, while 84% of Americans earn more than their parents, about a third moved up between income classes during the past four decades, according to a new study from the Economic Mobility Project at not, at the nonpartisan Pew Charitable Trust. 16% of all family surveys dropped from the income levels of their parents and blacks were more likely to be downwardly mobile than whites. While most Americans have more income earnings or wealth than their parents, it may not be enough to move them to a higher rung in the economic ladder, said Diana Elliott, the project's research manager. Among the most striking findings, the chances of moving from the bottom of the income spectrum to the very top is only about 4%. Well, that would stand to reason, because there's only so many people that fit in the top. God, these people can't do math. A figure that suggests the American rags-to-riches story is more often found in Hollywood than in reality, the survey noted. Researchers parsed data from about 2,200 families participating in the University of Michigan's panel of study, Income Dynamics, which has tracked the family income and wealth accumulated by a group of parents and their children from 1968 to 2009. The study looked at mobility in two ways, absolute and relative. In terms of absolute mobility, whether families make more money in inflation adjusted dollars than their parents. Americans are doing just fine. In all, 84% are earning more than their parents and half of them are accumulating greater wealth than their parents did at the same age, roughly in their 40s. But the study showed that Americans in the past 40 years have had a harder time moving up and down between income classes with what researchers have called the relative mobility. 43% of those rated raised by the bottom level of income earners were likely to be stuck at their, as there as adults, while 40% of the children from the highest-earning families were likely to remain high-earners themselves. So here's all the flaws with this. What they're saying is, number one, they're making more money than their parents, uh, even with inflation-adjusted dollars, but yet they're staying as a middle class or an upper-middle class or lower-middle class, even though they're making more money with inflation adjustment. This is because the people that do these studies are retarded. They really are. And they don't understand something like the inflation number is a lie. Okay, there's your first little thing to stick in your formula to fix the output. The inflation number is a lie. And if you used actual inflation, inflation adjustment numbers, you would see that most of these people are actually making less money doing this do if they were doing the same type of work as their parents. So the ones that still are up a little bit from their parents, the guy was dad was a plumber, and this guy's a doctor. Well no shit he makes more money. Depending on what he's doing, who knows how much more he's really making. Like I said, my father in the sixties, late sixties, early seventies doing construction work and killing himself working overtime, was making a salary better than most doctors at the time were making. Right now, he didn't make it all year round because in the winter they would get laid off and they collect unemployment and then they would go back to work. See, unemployment used to mean that too. This is this is how unemployment used to work. I know most people don't understand this that this is how it used to work. Uh, a company would have a whole bunch of people working and a, a slow time would come and they would lay them off and then the unemployment insurance that was purchased for them would be used to pay them a portion of their wages for a few months until work came back and then the same company that laid them off would actually call them back and they would go back and do their old job. And some people would expect this like once a year. Like there would be like January, February you're going to get laid off. And and it was just the way that it was. And and that was see that model's gone, right? And that's part of this whole thing, but the bigger issue here, and this is what these people still don't they're starting to, they're they're like on the trail now, but they can't see where the trail leads yet. It's not about moving up in the class. It's about the class migrating downward. The entire class. What does it mean to be upper middle class? And they just put numbers on this shit and they think it's supposed to make sense with numbers. No. It means where do you live? How much debt do you have to carry to, to, to exist? What is the cost of everything and how much can you, can you buy with what you have? And then it's the big one that's getting left out. How much is left over? How much are you saving? And when we start looking at this, we start to realize that even the people that have these income levels that we call upper middle class, there, what that means is sliding downward. And every, all of them are sliding downward. Only the truly financial elite are solid. Even the the wealthy, the affluent, and I'm talking about people that are worth you know a few million dollars or more, right? The, those people are even seeing what, they, and they don't notice it as much because they're still so comfortable. And you probably have no sympathy for them, and I'm not telling you to have sympathy for them. But if you if you ignore that that's that, that that's happening to those people too, well, like, oh, I don't care about those millionaire jerks. You know what? If you if you ignore that, then what you fail to understand is how big the problem is, right? And you got to let go of the class warfare nonsense they've been programming in your brain since you were a little kid in freaking kindergarten, right? Everybody should share, Timmy. Get that crap out of your head and understand if the if the affluent layer. Right, Not the elite, but the affluent and wealthy layers are seeing their quality of life erode. Even when they have more money today than they did yesterday, that spells disaster for the people in the middle and the bottom. It's not that they need to be happy so we can be happy, it's that... It's a bigger economic indicator. So mainstream media on the trail finally to downward class migration still ain't figured it out yet. We'll see if they ever catch up before the big crunch comes, and then they'll be like, how did this happen? I don't understand. And there's this lunatic on the survival podcast that's been talking about this for years. Oh, he's nuts even, yeah, okay. Anyway, let's go ahead and take another one. And on the note of... um on the note of uh, further financial problems and 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 uh, further uh, further jack predictions coming true, more and more cities uh, seem to be using the uh bankruptcy get out of jail free card and seeing where it leads, which is not a good place and um, California is becoming ground zero for this as three cities have cascaded over the edge into bankruptcy you know, in the last two weeks, actually week and a half. And, and, and the thing is, it's being reported like, well, like, oh, this just happened. This is not like it just happened. This, this crap's been coming. This is the longest telegraphed punch in human history, uh, this municipal bankruptcy thing that's going to finally go blow up and, and really become evident to people. But it's just starting. The threads are just starting to unravel. I'm going to play for you a little news report here instead of reading you an article, and then I'll come back and give you my thoughts on what it means.
2: San Bernardino's abrupt plunge into bankruptcy is bringing with it accusations of fraudulent accounting and revealing an investigation into the city's finances already in progress. KTLA's Rick Chambers with us tonight from San Bernardino to sort through it all. Rick? Yeah, Micah, for at least five months now, investigators have been looking into allegations of someone cooking the books here at City Hall. Now tonight, they're trying to determine what role, if any, it all played in the city going bankrupt any evidence of suspected wrongdoing has been turned over to the appropriate government agencies san bernardino city attorney james Penman speaking this evening about a long-running investigation and audit targeting local budget officials who allegedly falsified documents for more than a decade to cover deficit spending and paint a much better financial picture for the city i did not become aware of the uh, city's true financial picture until July 2nd. Penman wouldn't say who is being investigated or by whom, but the case apparently expanded this past spring when the city manager and finance director were advised of possible wrongdoing at City Hall. And they were able to obtain documents that we had not previously been able to obtain And those documents were turned over to the appropriate government agencies. A number of factors led to Tuesday's announcement that San Bernardino would become the third California city to seek bankruptcy protection. A horrible economy, falling tax revenues, soaring pension payments, and the loss of millions in state redevelopment dollars and now word that fraud here at the city level
0: may have contributed. It makes me feel kind of upset. This sounds like there ain't going to be no jobs, there's, there's no type of money, you know, San Bernardino's already low already, so... It's going to get worse. It's going to get worse.
2: The city attorney's office tonight claims that it, along with other unnamed agencies, are investigating. And back here live tomorrow morning, police and fire chiefs will address how all of this affects public safety in the city. And then at next Monday's city council meeting here in San Bernardino, two resolutions will be voted on. The first one will declare a fiscal emergency here in the city, and then the second one will be the Chapter 9 bankruptcy. In San Bernardino, I'm Rick Chambers, KTLA 5 News at 10. Guys, I'll...
1: now um, there's Now, there's an article that goes along with this that has some things in it that uh, are a little bit more telling. And this is one thing that I want to talk about before I go into my analysis of this this, and some of the things that people aren't saying yet, but they will start saying soon. Here's a part from the article. Quote, there are likely to be more in the future, meaning bankruptcies, but it's hard to know since a lot of struggling cities may manage to work things out, said Michael Coleman, a fiscal policy advisor for California League of Cities. Quote, some cities may not go into a bankruptcy, but they may dissolve. They may cease to exist, and quote. Okay, before I get into the jack analysis of the audio that you heard, let's talk about this idea. Some cities may just say, screw it, we're done. Okay, you know what that means? That means that there is no city, there's no more municipality, everything just goes away and dissolves. And you go, how... How does does that even work? I mean, you just can't, like, the city's not going to be gone. It's not like be, somebody's going to come in and just take all the buildings away and mow it flat. And could happen, but that's probably not what they mean here. And it's not. Here's what would happen. The larger municipal areas nearby would just absorb it or it would be broke or new towns would be formed. Kind of like a breakup of like a a country where it goes off and creates city states. Like maybe the city that used to be, you know, really big is now becomes four or five small towns, uh, as people put it back together. But all the people that were expecting pensions and retirements and all from that, gone. No more. Who does law enforcement? (laughs) Figure it out, guys. See, this is the real world. This is the real frickin' world. This is not magical Disney make-believe bullshit that they feed you, that there'll always be somebody there to fix things for you, and there'll always be a bailout. No, this is reality. Now, here's the bigger thing, and this is the thing no one's keying in on yet, but you trust Uncle Jack. You trust Uncle Jack here. It's going to get keyed in on, and it's going to lead to some dark places. What you found out here, shockingly, (laughs) the city people running the government of the city of San Bernardino And the financial side of it specifically lied about the financial realities inside the city. They lied and then all of a sudden the financial reality came to the surface and oh shit, we're out of money. Hmm. You know what that's going to make people start doing? I wonder if any other city would do such a thing. Or is it just those evil jerks in San Bernardino? People are going to start looking. People are going to start asking questions. People that work for cities that are betting on a retirement that are only five years into it are going to start going, I want to know now because I've got the rest of my life to go do something else if this is not going to... I want to know. And a lot of the old-timers are going to go, shut up, shut up, because they just want to stay long enough for them to start getting some of theirs. right? But it ain't going to work. The voices are going to start being heard. Who else is doing this? How did this work? How common is this book cooking practice? How many other people have done it? What other ways could this be done? And that is starting to pull the thread. Now, the other thing that's going on here is you saw three cities go, and uh, somebody suggested that I start just uh, get a little clip. Remember the old Queen song, Another One Bites the Dust? And every time a city goes bankrupt, go, This Just In. Another one, you know, play the music and then tell you who went next. And sadly, it could become a regular segment in the near future. It's starting. It's starting. The cascade failure is beginning. It has a long way to go. You won't see the full ramifications of this in 2012. You may not really see it completely unwind even in 2013. You may be in a 2014 before it really starts. This is the, the little pinhole in the dam, and the water is just starting to squirt through. And you're going, oh, we can, it's, it's a little hole we can fix. it." Stick your finger in there until somebody comes, you know, a little boy with a finger in the dike. It's going to be, uh-uh, uh-uh, because there's cracks everywhere in the dam. This is the other thing that starts to get dangerous when this happens. Cities start to look at what other cities are doing, and they're going, well, they did it. There's no way out other than this. We can do it, too. It's Here's a story for you. When I was a kid. And we used to go trout fishing on the first day. They would stock the trout for about two, three weeks before the season. And any of the stock trout waters, you better not be fishing there. And you better not be fishing in there until 8 a.m. the day of the first day of the season. Now, there were some lakes and stuff they put some trout into with other sport fish and all. But this is mostly the trout streams. You don't even put a line in the frickin' water between the date the stalking begins. And if you do, they'll arrest your ass. They'll find your ass. They'll take your fishing poles away. Um, they may take your vehicle. They usually don't, but they can go that far. It's heavily enforced, and they're out looking for people doing it, right? And there's guys out with hand lines trying to sneak fish, that type of thing, right? You know, for these little trout they stock that are like eight, nine inches long, it's, it's not worth breaking the law over. But first day of trout season is a big deal, and it's always a Saturday morning, and it's always still cold out. And it's always the same scene. You'll be all up and down these streams. You'll see fishermen at like 7.30 starting to show up and get their spot. They've got their spot. They always like to start in, and everybody's there, and everybody's waiting. And everybody's waiting till the first person throws in, which is never at 8 o'clock. It's like 7.55, 7.50, something like that. And once a couple people throw in, people just kind of look up and down, and somebody will you because know, there's so many fish stock, you'll see a couple guys yank a trout in, and everybody looks up and down, and there's nobody's busting anybody, there's no game wardens around and then all the lines go in at once even though it's still technically before starting time and what you can see sometimes is somebody that's a little bit nefarious just wants to see what'll happen will pick their rod up with a pebble and they'll make a casting motion and throw a pebble out, and then like Somebody down the stream will look around and you well know, they'll throw in too, and then they threw in for real and they'll catch a fit and then the lines all go in and the guy who threw the pebbles is like, okay now I'll go right so this is this is the pebbles right this is these first cities that are doing this and they're, they're making it okay for these other cities to do it and the counties are coming next guys and the big cities are are still you know the big cities can get away with the lie for longer. But sooner or later, somebody's going to want to look at Los Angeles' books, or San Francisco's books, or Philadelphia's books, or City of New York's books, and they're going to realize that, you know what, maybe they lied too. And I'll bet you, I'll bet you a gentleman's bet, (laughs) because we can't ever actually do it because we'll never get the opportunity. But if we audited 100 major cities in the United States today, I would bet that at least 50% would show some evidence like this, some level of lying, some level of bookkeeping. And if we could do it, I would make you a bet of uh, for every one over 50, you owe me a beer. And for every one under 50%, I owe you a beer. And I think I'd end up with a lot of beers if I had a lot of people take that action with me. Um and as that string unravels, more and more of this is going to become evident. And you've got to think about what that does when all of these people that were relying on cities for their retirement and for their jobs suddenly without either. Uh or with very, very reduced. I mean Scranton, what did Scranton just do? I talked to you about it last week. Reduced every person in the city government to minimum wage. Chief of police? To the average beat cop, to the guy that's a janitor in the building, to everybody employed by the city of Scranton reduced to minimum wage until they figure out what to do. And they went even with that, they went down to five grand in the bank. Man, I'm telling you, it's coming. They're lying when they say it's not. You know, people will call me crazy for pointing to this as the one of the biggest financial uh, landmines out there, the municipal level defaults that are coming, and they'll say it's just the city here and the city there. I'm not lying to you guys. I'm not making this up. I wish I was wrong. This stuff's starting to unfold exactly the way that I said it would. Okay, before I go into this story, i got to give you guys that maybe haven't listened to me long enough to know that this is reality, a little bit of a, a, a global reality lesson in how business gets done in the world, especially with oil. Uh, usually it's with many items of trade, and that is that two nations, like in this case Turkey and Iran, want to trade oil with each other. And then what that means is that Turkey takes their money and puts it through a system called SWIFT, and it gets turned into dollars, and then the transaction is done in dollars, and then Iran takes the dollars and puts them back into their own form of currency, and the dollar gets used as the medium of exchange. This has become known as the petrol dollar. And it's basically a global requirement that people have followed on and on and on and on and on, since it was instigated in the 70s as part of a reprisal for the uh, oil embargo and some other things that have gone on in an attempt to uh, stabilize the dollar as the global currency. So the rest of the world bought into it because the dollar is the global currency. So this is to make it work. This is to help protect it, right? This is so you can base your money on our money and be okay. Even if your money is worth more or less, you need stability for it, for it all to work, so let's all do this. Well, more and more countries are starting to go, why the hell should we do that? Right? So I had on last week with um, China and Australia doing direct transactions in their own currencies without involving these, these international banking agencies to do these currency conversions. They're just saying, I'll give you my money, you'll take it, you can do whatever you want to with it. Or, you know, I'll buy your currency from you and, and pay you back in it, whatever, however you want to do this. It's, it's our business, not theirs. Well, right now, of course, Iran is is having problems selling their oil due to sanctions, Uh, and basically, like, well, we can buy it with nobody else, right? That's the, that's the way that we're gonna punish them, you know, is is the way that this kind of thing has been, uh, put in, put in, uh, place. And, uh, to try to make Iran build, you know, basically yield to the demands of the United States. Well, probably our strongest, uh, Middle Eastern ally, other than Israel, and truly a state that is is mostly Arabic definitely our strongest ally is not as many would lead you to believe Egypt it's Turkey Turkey and the US have a great relationship but they've just hoisted a giant petrodollar middle finger to the United States and said we're not going to be construed and, and put into this position because you don't want us trading with a very very near neighbor who's willing to do business with us for oil that we need so Here's the, uh, here's the article. Uh, it's on the Washington Free Beacon. Gold for oil. Turkey skirting Iran sanctions by trading gold for crude. Turkey has exchanged nearly 60 tons of gold for several million tons of Iranian crude oil, despite its promises to uphold Western sanctions on Iran's energy sector, according to recent Turkish reports. By using gold instead of money, Turkey is able to skirt Western sanctions on Iran's oil trade, particularly those pertaining to SWIFT, the global money transfer service that until recently assisted the Central Bank of Iran with other Iranian finance and other Iranian financial institutions. Over the past several months Turkey has given Iran 60 tons of gold or more than 3 billion according to a July 8 report on the Turkish news site Vatican Vatan Online. This the report was translated by Open Source Center a translation service used by the CIA. The exchange raises questions about the Obama administration's decision to grant Turkey a temporary waiver, exempting it from U.S. sanctions to Iran, according to foreign policy experts and those on Capitol Hill who speculate. The revelation could spur Congress to pass a new round of Iran sanctions to prevent such trades. Quote, the idea that Turkey needs a waiver for more time to disconnect itself from Iranian oil trade is ludicrous. Said Michael Rubin, a former Pentagon advisor on Iran and Iraq. Turkey is playing Obama for a fool. You can read the rest of the article if you want to. I end it there because I don't think it's so hard to play Obama for a fool. Honestly, turn the teleprompter off and he can do it for himself. But here's the reality. I don't care if you don't like Iran. I don't care if you're not too fond of Turkey. Who is the United States of America to tell two other countries what they can and can't buy from each other, especially if it's not something dangerous? This isn't somebody selling somebody a nuke here. This is one country buying another country's oil. And you get all the geopolitics of this as you want to, and it comes down to the case of, well, we can make a big case for why we want it that way, but do we get to decide? And what we need to realize here, for to understand the the, the, the gravity of this nation's economic future, is that we've run the world as a big ass monetary bully, specifically since about nineteen sixty nine. Uh, we have we have basically bullied the world into doing business in our currency, and if they're doing business in our currency, it's easy for us to control things and to prevent trades and to, to say who gets to deal with who and how much they get to spend. And more and more countries are saying, We we don't really need you. We don't and I told you guys very, very early in the show, very not this show, very early in the history of this show, back in 2008, that we weren't going down then. The ship was going to stay afloat because the rest of the world was tethered to the USS USS. You know, right? they're, 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 they were tethered to our ship. The U- USS United States of America, if it went down in 2008, would literally have drug the entire world down economically with it. And that this was a wake-up call with what we did, and how bad we screwed it up, and how bad our debt was running away, that all these nations would start to look over at us and go, yeah, uh, that day is coming to an end, and we need to cut the rope. And we can't just cut the rope, because right now, in many instances, they're pulling us along. Right? This is not the Gulf stream driving the ship. The USS USA is actually a pretty powerful ship and it's getting us to go certain places and even though it's slowed down it's got a hole in the side of it hit an iceberg it's not going down right now and we need to get in there and help bail Okay, because we've got to keep this ship moving and afloat long enough to buy enough time to figure out how to go forward economically without relying on those idiots who did this anymore. And then Now they're looking at Europe and going, you guys are pretty freaking... In fact, you're dumber than they are. You're crashing your ship faster than the... So the USS Euro is going down faster than the USS Dollar. So those are the two giant global ships. And the rest of the world has figured out that those ships are sinking and they're getting the tethers cut. And one thing they need to do... To get that done is to start doing business with each other without needing us to get that business done. And that's exactly what you're seeing here. And again, you can take the geopolitics anywhere you want to. You could talk about how the Iranians are crazy and want to blow up the world or whatever you want to. But the reality is for about 50 years, the U.S. has been able to control trade between other nations that we really had no business putting our nose into simply because the trades were being done in dollars. And it's given us a massive economic advantage and a massive diplomatic advantage and a massive military advantage throughout the rest of the world. And the rest of the world is snapped to this, and they're telling us to bugger off. And we're going to have to deal with the repercussions of that. Uh, let's take another one. Actually, before I go on, there's something else I need to say about this. It, it just kind of occurred to me, and it's uh, be an interesting example of nations playing chess while we play checkers so once again. What if Iran and some other of these big oil-producing Arabic countries that are pretty much tired of the U.S. telling them how to run their countries and and getting in their face and threatening them with invasion whenever they do anything they don't like uh, and sometimes making good on the threat? What if uh, a block of them? four or five got together and said, here's what we're going to do. We can't do this alone because they'll they'll come in and blow our shit up. So we need to do this as a block so that it's it's too complicated for them to come in and do this uh, any other way and they're just going to have to accept reality. Uh, and what if, like, Russia joined this alliance because they produce a lot of oil? And what if these oil cartels got together and said, we're not going to stop selling oil for dollars. You can pay for dollars, play for oils with dollars if you'd like to, but We'll take gold and we'll give people that buy in gold a discount. Yep, we'll give you a discount. And then what if they took all the gold and took it into their own countries and put it in vaults deep into the ground the way that the United States used to manage their finances and started issuing their currency against gold and basically s- switched to an internal gold standard within their nations? How powerful would their currency become over time? And as they depleted their oil reserves, and that's pretty much all that a lot of these country ha- countries have are reserves of oil, they would be building their gold reserves. They wouldn't tie the money, the gold wouldn't be tied up, really, because they would issue their currency against it. So they could hold the gold and, and have liquidity and currency at the same time. So this is the way a gold standard actually works. It would be interesting. And what if to prevent from being hostily infringed upon that they said we will not exchange, uh, our currency for gold with foreign, foreign nations unless we have a specific agreement to do so? So that would prevent, like, let's say the U.S. going in and buying up a bunch of Iraqi currency and then demanding them to turn over the gold in exchange for the currency. It could be an interesting situation, couldn't it? It could be a major tactical economic advantage and really what's to stop any of these major oil producers from doing it. What if Brazil, Venezuela, Russia uh, got on that bandwagon with a few large Middle Eastern nations? well, that would really be a sticky wicket, as the British would say, wouldn't it? And it would be hard for you to say that they're doing anything improperly. Why can't I sell whatever I sell to whoever I want to for whatever I want to for any price that I want to? Isn't that the free market, America? Interesting, wouldn't it? And the more people that did it, the harder it would be for us to do something about. And what shape are we really in to do anything about it right now? That's another example of three-dimensional chess, while your ass clowns in DC lose games of checkers. Let's take another one. Well, this one here is just going to be a quick shout out to a guy named James from uh Tennessee, who actually came by our house and uh broke red with us. We had some uh some adult beverages. We probably had one too many adult beverages together and uh hung out. But he has a blog, I've actually seen his blog a couple times. He is kind of blown away that I've ever actually uh read his blog, but he has a blog called Survival Punk. And uh he has an article that he put out this week. he sent I me mean, I thought I'd give him a quick shout out. just read his list off, and you can go there and read the uh his justification for his choices but uh, it's called the top ten paleo food for storage uh number ten maple syrup, number nine sauerkraut uh number eight uh lard, number seven salami uh number six salt cured meats in general number five salt, number four coconut oil, number three honey. Uh, number two, biltong, and number one, uh, pemmican. And I think I would actually agree with pemmican over biltong because pemmican has large amounts of fat and some carbohydrate going on where biltong is primarily just a protein source with a little bit of fat. So I think I would, from a survival standpoint, uh, not necessarily a taste standpoint, but a survival standpoint, put Pemmican at number one over uh, Bill Tong myself. I think my list might look a little different. I think we could come up with a really kick-ass paleo prepper list if we work on it together, guys. But he also has a bonus. Bonus uh, is, I have a special bonus for you. You should be storing tequila. As a hard liquor, it has no expiration date. You can make delicious NorCal margaritas, disinfect wounds, or use it for barter. People are always willing to pay for a drink when times are tough. That's my paleo-friendly 10 plus 1 list. So I'll put a link in today's show notes so you can go uh, check out James's blog and uh, maybe leave him a comment, let him know that you heard about him on TSP, and uh, ask him how, how good Jack's NorCal margaritas are, because I make some pretty damn good ones. Uh, let's take another one. So I've been getting Selco from the Balkans, uh, shit at the fan school, email uh, stuff since I had him on air. And um, he has an article out today about how uh, chaos can actually sometimes help in a uh, a survival situation. So I'm going to read that article to you because I think it might help us think our way out of problems in the future and learn when to keep your mouth shut too sometimes. I work in medical field, and a few days ago we got called to transport some guy who broke his back. Nothing special, but this guy broke his back while trying to attack a woman and probably rob and rape her. He attacked her on a staircase in a house where she lives. Instead of resisting his attack from behind, the woman was just so shocked that she fell backwards on the guy, and he fell down a staircase and broke his back you got to love that. This is what some might call a happy end. Women had just a few bruises and got away. This reminded me of something that happened to my cousin during the war. In this region here, Western type of culture has always been more popular than Eastern, especially for everyday things that young people do. Some young folks here always like things that most people in the West like, like music, a way of living, and all of that. A few years before the war, that all became even more popular, I guess thanks to all political changes and all of that. A few months before the war, my cousin ordered some small company military ID tags for himself. It looked just like the original U.S. ID tags with those rubber covers. It was some kind of fashion thing for him. He did not engrave his name on it. He engraved the name of a metal group he liked, and on the other end plate, he engraved an eagle. He was all into music and guitars and long hair and all that. Important thing to mention is the Army and armies here did not have ID tags, Even if they had it looked completely different, it was a small one, one small metal plate inside of the plate were name, unit numbers, etc. One small piece of paper, kind of thin plastic paper that was waterproof. In the first month when everything was still confusing and when all kinds of people were in the street, some tried to run and hide somewhere, others tried to take whatever they can in the chaos. He found himself trying to run from his apartment to a safe place and a house. All kinds of different armed groups were in the streets, some on barricades, some running through the city doing raids. They stopped him and a bunch of other guys on one checkpoint and immediately started to beat them and search them for valuable things. One guy pointed a pistol towards him and started to search him by ripping his pockets on his shirt. He said later in the first moments that he was scared to death and went completely numb and was paralyzed and that probably saved his life. The guy who searched him saw the ID tags. He started to yell at him. The conversation, as he can remember, went something like this. Gang member number one, what the F is this, you idiot? Are you belonging to some group slapping him? Cousin, no response. Gang member one, I'll blow your head off if you don't answer me. Cousin, still no response. Gang member two, what do you have there? White, gold, silver, just take it from him. Gang member number one, no, it's something else, and he's playing death. Gang member number two, let me see. Shit, maybe he's French. I think he is on French. Uh, On that moment, my cousin realized that he needs to keep his mouth closed, not only because of fear. Gang member two, creator, spelling from the ID text, K-R-E-A-T-O-R. Is your name creator? Yelling at him in a local language. In background, my cousin hears a few shots. He did not turn his head to check who was shot or why. Gang member number two, anybody here speak French? Asking other group members. Cousin said, luckily the guys looked like they could barely speak their own language. Most of the time they just yell and grunt and moan like a bunch of apes. Gang member number one yelling, UN newspapers, BBC, Payne, Reporter. Okay, just leave the idiot. We do not want any troubles. Gang member number one, go, go, you can go, waving his hands on my cousin. Uh, gang member number three, maybe he could write a story about us and our group. Gang member two, shut up, you idiot. My cousin just slowly moved away from that. After about 100 meters, he started to run. He said one of the guys said to him a few times, nice, nice in English, probably trying to say to him that he can go, but probably the old words were the only English he knew. I asked him why he did not start to speak English because I knew that he knows some basic English. He said, in that moment, I forgot how to speak my own language, not to mention English, not to mention that had he in the back, he he had in the back of his pocket some documents that clearly stated he's a local uh, he's local, guys just uh, did not make it to his pocket the survival lesson from these stories is that when we are outnumbered or clearly in a weaker position, it often helps by introducing more chaos and confusion the woman did not plan to fall backwards on the guy, but was just shocked and then because of falling, the cards are mixed new She could not. she could have gotten hurt or the attacker, but luckily the attacker got hurt more, same with my cousin he did not plan for this But having this ID, he made straightforward situation for the gang members more confusing. It's hard to unkill someone so he was let go because they did not know how to react to the situation. Both my cousin and this woman did not do what they did on purpose. They got lucky. But if you ever find yourself in hopeless situations, keep in mind that if something nobody expects happens or you make it happen, cards are now mixed anew and you might have a chance for your survival to be increased. Shuffling cards new is often better than sure death. I'm not going to add to that. I just thought it was a great read and wanted to share that with you. And this is a guy, again, that lived through the Balkan Wars. And you can find out more about Soko at shtfschool.com. I'll put a link to this story in the show notes, and you, of course, can go to the rest of the site from there. You've probably heard people say over the last year or two, as the stock market has come back quite a bit, that the Fed has purchased a bull market. Now, they pretty much have proved it to themselves. I'm not going to read much of this article uh, because it gets into some technicalities. But basically, I'm looking at a chart right now that shows the S&P 500 index with and without uh, Federal Reserve activity. And it would be about half of what it is today. And this is using uh, information from the Fed itself. So the Fed is basically currently responsible for half the value in the stock market uh, through their policies and printing of monies. What does that say to America about under the underlying value of its economy, that at least half of it is pretty much fake, made up with fake money and fake debt? Uh, even in playing by the rules of the current system, that happens to be the case. So we're going along today, so I don't want to go deep into that one, but I did want to make sure you guys got a look at this article, so it'll be in today's show notes. It is called, and it's on uh, CNBC.com, so this is not exactly, exactly, you know, like some kind of alternative media or anything. And the title of the article is Market Savior? Stocks Might Be 50% Lower Without the Fed. So how is the Fed capable of propping up the market? They're capable of propping up the market through the issuance, basically, policies, bailouts, and monopoly money. You can read the whole article for yourself if you want to. Let's go on to another uh, piece of feedback. Here's a quick little email for you, um little tip, and uh, it makes my advice hopefully a little bit better to you. It says, in episode 941, you suggested to a caller he might want to buy some shares of SLV to get some exposure to silver. I would suggest SIVR instead, which is audited and therefore has to have the silver on hand that it says it does. This is not the case with SLV, which can and I suspect does hold mostly mostly paper like future contracts thank for the show. So I, I checked into this and apparently it's true that um, if you if you buy the ETF SIVR uh, versus SLV that they are required to have on hand the silver that they represent that their fund is holding in physical metal. And there's regular audits and they publish the information from the audits uh, frequently. So other than taking physical delivery of the metal, this is probably the safest way that you could play the silver market. Let me say a little bit about ETFs and silver. I don't like silver ETFs. I don't like gold ETFs. I don't like ETFs in general uh, for most people unless they really understand the investment. Okay, Um, But this is the place I see for silver and gold ETFs. If you want to hold silver and gold in an IRA or a 401k or something like that, uh, I don't think it makes sense to put physical metal in there. Because you're taking the most anonymous money in the world and making it on public display. If you buy silver and put it somewhere and hold it, or gold somewhere and hold it, it's yours. And you own it because you hold it. And that's the best way to do business. But it's also anonymous money. There's no paper trail, really. There's No no one can say, you know, we know you have X bars of silver. It's It's yours. And it can be exchanged, and it can be exchanged anonymously, and it has a lot of... A lot of advantages because it's anonymous wealth. So if you're going to hold money on display to everybody and their mother in the federal government, uh, in the state government, in the local government, in the financial lending institutions, going through all that trouble to hold physical metal doesn't make a lot of sense to me. And to me, it doesn't matter if it's physical or not. If you can't put your hands on it. And holding silver and gold in an IRA, you can't keep it in your house and hold it in an IRA. It doesn't work that way. So with these funds, if there's a big spike in the market, unlike the clumsy nature of trading physical metal for profit versus holding it as insurance long term with the transaction fees and spot price and all, all you have to do is put a sell order in and it's sold. And if it drops after a spike and you knew it was a spike and you want to buy it back, buy It's that simple, and that's why I think it makes more sense. I never liked SLV, but I thought it was the best option. It turns out it's not. SIVR, smaller, audited, holds the metal, not just paper contracts. If you want to play silver in the ETF world, check them out. Again, SIVR is the ticker. On there, I'm not suggesting you go buy it. I'm saying if you're gonna go the ETF route with silver, that it's a better, safer play, uh, if, you know, from being in some kind of unable to deliver situation or something like SLV could be. In fact, I really am glad that I have an alternative to SLV for you guys now because I feel like SLV is a big part of the, sil- the manipulation of the silver market by using large amounts of paper to control even larger amounts of silver that doesn't actually exist. So, uh, thank you to Danny, who uh, sent that in to us. I'm going to read a question from somebody, and then I'm going to go straight to a different story. And I'm going to tie the two together and commentate on them together, because again, we are getting long today. But Dustin sent me a question. This question for Jack, lending tightening up. Jack Lee said, you are now expediting your land purchase because of the uncertainty of future lending. I'm in the same boat. was hoping you could break down the process that, and signs that lead you to this belief. And what should we be keeping an eye on in the future that could signal this happening? Um, like I said, I'm going to go right to another uh, piece of feedback from Darby Simpson. Uh, from Simpson Family Farm, he says all kinds of great stuff. Darby, thanks for all your contributions. Uh, here's what he has an exclamation. Yeah. This ought to fix the problem, so Darby's pissed. Local county plans to use eminent domain to seize troubled mortgages and pay mortgage companies. Quote, fair market value. Turn the homes back over to the homeowner at a lower, quote, market value sales price. Can this really be happening? Is what Darby says. Like, yeah, it can happen. And uh, it's an easy sell to some of the people involved, especially the homeowners. Let me read this to you. When I first heard about this, I didn't comment on it because I was really not sure about It didn't make sense. It sounded like this: the county or the cities in California were going to repossess people's homes under intimate domain and and, and resell them, which just I, I couldn't see that ever being you know gotten through. So now we have more information on this, and Darby, as usual, is a great source of info when stuff like this breaks. California City Ice Plan to Seize Mortgages, Fontana, California. In the foreclosed, battered inland stretches of California, local government officials, desperate for change, are weighing a controversial but innovative way to fix troubled mortgages. Condemn them. Officials from San Bernardino County and two other cities have formed a local agency to consider the plan, but investors who stand to lose money on their mortgage investments may have, to have been quick to register their displeasure. Discussion of the idea is taking place in one in the epicenter of the housing crisis a working class region east of LA where housing prices have plummeted last week Last week brought another sharp reminder of the crisis when 210,000-strong city of San Bernardino struggling after shrunken home prices walloped local tax revenues, announced it would sink bankruptcy protection. Now amid skepticism on many fronts, officials from the surrounding county of San Bernardino and cities of Fontana and Ontario have created joint powers authority to consider what role local government could take to stem the crisis. The goal is to keep homeowners saddled by large mortgage payments from losing their homes, which are now valued at a fraction of what they were once worth. We just have too much pain and misery in this country to call off a public discussion like this, said David Wert, a county spokesman. The idea was broached by a, a group of West Coast financiers who, using a power of eminent domain, which lets government seize private property for public use, In this case, they would condemn the troubled mortgages so they could seize them from the investors who own them. Then the mortgages would be rewritten so borrowers would have significantly lower monthly payments. Steve Gluckstern, chairman of the newly formed San Francisco-based Mortgage Resolution Partners, says his main concern is to help the economy, which is being held back by the mortgage crisis. Quote, this is not a bunch of Wall Street guys sitting around saying how do we make money, he said. Quote, this was a bunch of Wall Street guys sitting around saying how do we solve this problem. Typically, eminent domain has been used to clear property for infrastructure projects like highways, schools and sewage plants. But supporters say that giving help to struggling borrowers is also a legitimate use of eminent domain because it's in the public's best interest. Under the proposal, the city or county would sign on as a client of mortgage resolution partners, then condemn certain mortgages. The mortgages are typically owned by private investors like hedge funds and pension funds. Under eminent domain, the city or county would be required to pay those investors, quote, fair value, end quote, for the seized mortgages. So mortgage resolution partners would find private investors to refund that. Mortgage resolution partners will focus on mortgages where the borrowers are current on their payments, but are, quote, underwater, end quote, meaning their mortgage costs more than their home is worth. After being condemned and seized, the mortgages would be rewritten based on the home's current values. The borrowers would get to stay, but with a cheaper monthly payment, the city or county would resell the loans to other private investors so it could pay back the investors who funded the seizure and pay a flat fee to mortgage resolution partners. The article continues a lot more, but I think you get the point. I come to you and I say, Tim, look, I'm from this government, and I'm here to help you, and I actually mean it this time. You owe $250,000 on your house. You and I both know that your house is worth about $150,000. So what I'm going to do is seize your house, not from you because you don't really own it, from your lender. I'm going to seize your house from your lender under eminent domain. And then I'm going to give you a rubber stamp mortgage for $150,000 on your house. And when I do that, your payment's going to go from a 250000 dollars base payment to a 150000 dollars base payment, and you're going to get the great interest rates that are available right now. There's not going to be any kind of real credit check or anything because the fact that you're paying the bills and have been selected for this special program by myself and my friends tells us that you're credit worthy. The fact that you can pay and you stayed current, and I know you're struggling, but you did it. you're a good risk. So how many homeowners do you think are going to say no to that? I think very few. I think on principle, a lot of people won't like it, but if they start doing it, they're gonna go, well, hell, I want, I want this too. And the sell to the people is, the bailout that they did for the banks was supposed to help you. It was supposed to help you. And it didn't. They gave the banks the money, the banks kept the money, and the banks screwed over the people. And the people that did get new deals, you know, brokered, were the people that were already behind on their mortgages, the people that weren't responsible, the people that were about to walk away, they got, and then a lot of them defaulted anyway. This is for the people that played by the rules, that did what they were supposed to do, that was screwed over by the banksters, and we're gonna fix it for them. Because you've proven that you're worthy of our assistance in this matter, and it's better for our community. The other side of this is, then how are you gonna get a freaking mortgage? Right? If cities start doing this, if this becomes a fix, and I'll tell you why a city would do this, where, one, it will stabilize the local economy. Two, a lot of these people are about to walk away. They've, they've held out as long as they can, they can't do it anymore, they're about to walk away. If they walk away, they get, the, the city gets no property taxes. Right. two, if I cut your payment from a 250 payment to a 150 payment, on the day I do it, I can raise your property taxes a little bit and tell you we had to figure out how to get this to work, and you'll accept it. So I can increase my revenues at the expense of the private issuer of the debt, and everybody wins except the private issuer of the debt. And I know the temptation for many of you is to say, well, screw them, they did this. But it's not quite the case. See, the banks did this. And they took the loans, and they sold them to these other investment firms. And you say, screw the investment bankers, they're a bunch of jerks. But no, my friends, no, no. What you better understand is that many of the f- pension funds being held by the city people, we keep talking about bankruptcies, the, the government workers, many of their pensions, many a school teachers' pension, many a pension, many, many, many a pension all over the world is currently holding these mortgages, and using them to pay their retirement funds. And you say, well, but they'll get paid. They'll get the paid the fair market value. Well, here's what's going to happen then if, if they go through with this. The crappiest, shittiest loans, all the toxic ones that are inside these vehicles, they're going to end up keeping those, and the government and this mortgage resolution part is going to go in and cherry-pick the good risks, and... You've got to look at this one and go, this is wrong on its face. But we're also in a position where if cities are going to be going bankrupt, counties are going to be going bankrupt, we have to put some stability with this. And this is one that I am actually very conflicted about. The morality in me says there could be nothing more wrong than this. Absolutely. First of all, I, I'm opposed to eminent domain in the first place. But, okay, this is like, let's say I'm opposed to you blowing your brains out, but I'm a surgeon, and you blow your brains out, and you have a good kidney. I, I, I don't like that you blew your brains out, but the kidney's right there, and I got a guy laying on my table that's going to die, and I can take your kidney and put it in there. Even if you killed yourself so the guy had to have the kidney, I'm still going to put the kidney in, because there's no reason for this guy to die. So imminent domain exists, and until we get rid of it, if something good comes from it, something good comes, but the, the, the morality in me will not let go of this. You're thieving, you're stealing the best of what these people, and that's what you've got to understand. It's not nameless, faceless corporations. It's retirees, and soon-to-be retirees, whose cities, whose counties, whose unions we're told these are good investments what's better than real estate and they bought these mortgages and they put them in the pension funds and now they can't sell them and now that they've been completely beat up by that these people want to come in and take out all the good and leave the bad and you say well it's not all the good it's just a little part of california if this works there you watch city after city after city County after county, state after state, do the same thing. And look at the local politician. He's gonna stand up and say to you, The Federal Reserve, the Federal Government promised to help you and they didn't help you. Texas will stand up, Dallas will stand up, Florida will stand up. We will do something about this. These people have parasited on you guys long enough. They have made their 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 living off of your backs. They drove the market up. We want to help you. We are here to take care of our local cities, our local states, our local governments. This could become, and they'll be cutting their own throats. They'll be cutting their own throats. Because as more and more do it, more and more it will affect all of the stuff being held in these pension funds. And it's already toxic, but when the stuff being held in the funds will be completely toxic. So there's but to the other side of this right if if i just want to save my county or my city or my state if i just want to stabilize it for the coming disaster does this help my city my county my state better than the fact that it's going to blow up anyway it probably does i'm not saying it's right i'm not saying that they should do it i'm saying on some levels it might work and i'm telling you to the average person it's going to sound like a pretty good deal and for them in the short term, it's a damn good deal. You tell me right now, if I just walked up to you, especially if I didn't explain all the stuff we've just talked about. and didn't explain, and I just said, you know what? Bank of America is actually who holds your loan. And the reality is Bank of America doesn't, but you don't know that. All you know is it says Bank of America, and you pay those jerks every freaking month for your house, and you can't sell, and you want to leave, and you can't get out. And, and I say to you, look, here's what I'll do. I'll tell Bank of America to go screw I'll turn your two hundred fifty K loan into a hundred fifty K loan right now. It'll take about a month to do, but I'll do it right now. I'm official, this is not a scam, I'm from the city, here's my ID, here's the whole program, here's how it all works. We'll be basically becoming your lender. We'll take it from them. Free and clear. There's nothing they can do about it. We'll give them 150000 because that's what this place is worth. We'll issue you a new mortgage for $150,000. we will give you a better interest rate. You don't have to do shit because we know you're credit worthy because you're paying your bills now. How many of you would say no to it? especially if you didn't understand the repercussions on the other side of it, because most people won't understand the repercussions. Now, eminent domain always comes with challenges. When they built the Cowboy Stadium was a perfect example. Some people had to go. They got market value for their homes. They weren't happy about it. They wanted new value. They said, you pay me what it's worth after you build the stadium. And some of them just said, I don't want to go. And they got thrown out. But the resistance all came in the form of people that were going to be affected by it. And those, of course, were people that were going to be affected negatively by it. See, there was a sales tax increase of a half a percent for like two years to pay for the government subsidizing. And there were people who had a moral objection to the government subsidizing. But there were people who had to leave and people that knew them. And there was a lot of resistance. And everywhere that eminent domain pops up, generally speaking, the people affected are the ones that live in there and have businesses at the place that are going to be thrown out. In this case, they can use eminent domain and not throw those people out. How much noise do you think they're going to make about it? How many people are going to say, you know what, I know this isn't really a good thing morally, but shut up, Joe. Let them do this. You know we're screwed. And then the beauty of this for the homeowner is once you give me my loan, I can sell my house. That's what he's thinking. But again, if I'm a bank, how likely am I to loan money in San Bernardino if San Bernardino does this? Because I'm going to go, look, guys, If you, I, I, I can't do this because they might steal it. That's the That's the objection. That's the objection, the, the, the mechanical objection. Now, the reality is, okay, this is going to stabilize prices, so you won't have to worry about that. And we know you jerk-sell your loans off to other people anyway, but they'll say, hey, you're polluting the market. Uh, you guys can just roll them up. Depends on how, how this happens. Now, I have to tell you, as opposed to this as I am on moral principle... It is a much better plan than the bailouts and everything that they did in the past. Letting people already underwater get new rates and having the banks be able to foreclose houses and make money selling at a loss because of tax... It's actually a better plan than anything they've done. I still don't like it, but it may be coming soon to a town near you. And it may be part of the threads unraveling. So be on the lookout for this one. So how does that relate then to the original question by Dustin? Signs that... Lending might be tightening up. If governments start seizing mortgages, paying fair market value, reissuing their own mortgages through other private equity firms, it may become increasingly difficult for the person that's buying a new house to get a loan, especially a first-time buyer. It might become really hard because the, 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 the bankster is now saying, look, man, I... You know, there's a lot of uncertainty, and nothing screws up a, a, an economy like uncertainty. Which town's going to do this next? So now, as it, your lender before, all I had to do was look at your creditworthiness and go, even if the market tanks them, if you're a good bet, then you're going to pay me. But if somebody might come in and extort it out of me, I, I might not. And That's just one. But these cities falling apart, these bankruptcies, right? Now you want me to loan money for you to buy a house in a city that's bankrupt. I don't think so. You see how that works? Um, is other nations start to go off the dollar value, right? And the dollar weakens even further. And I, I start, see, I mean, and then a lot of these banks and lending institutions just had their own credit downgraded. So your bank's ability to loan you money is not really contingent upon deposits. I mean, that's what they'd like you to believe because of the fractional reserve and an expansion and all. It's really contingent on their ability to borrow. See, they borrow the money at one rate and then they multiply it and lend it out at another. So, is their credit? So, these are all things that have me concerned, and just an economic downturn in general is going to make it harder to get a loan. So, those are some of the things I'm concerned with. Uh, I want to finish up today with a speech that was uh, that was uh, done about 40 years ago by a Latter Day Saints uh, Church minister. And there's not a lot of preaching in it. I don't do a lot of religion or anything. And the person that sent it to me uh, said straight up, you know, I'm not. Pushing religion here. I just want you to hear this. Here's what it said. It came from uh, Lessic, I think is the name of the person here. Um, anyway, I, 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 if I pronounced your name wrong, I'm sorry. But it says, Hi, I'm LDS but not here to preach. As a matter of fact, I never preach religion. We'll share it if time, place, and settings is appropriate. Forcing anybody on anything else cracks my gasket. Since it's Sunday, I've been watching some church-related videos and found this one, the larger portion, which is a part of a speech from Urza Taft Benson, who was the president of the Church of Jesus Christ Latter-day Saints and also held the office of Secretary of Agriculture, though not at the same time. This message was given over 40 years ago, but I found it very profound and true. It mentions people like you who are willing to stand for freedom and truth, and there's a link on YouTube. I'm going to go ahead and play that for you now and you'll see as much as things have changed in many ways they've stayed the same and all these things that are happening now aren't necessarily things that there was no way we could have seen coming
0: we've been placed on earth in troubled times we live in a complex world with currents of conflict everywhere to be found political machinations ruin the stability of nations I speak to you as a fellow citizen of the United States of America, deeply concerned about the welfare of our beloved country. I'm not here to tickle your ears, to entertain you. I will talk to you frankly and honestly. The message I bring is not a happy one, but it is the truth. And time is always on the side of truth. Truth must be repeated again and again because error is constantly being preached round about. I realize that the bearer of bad news is always unpopular. As a people, we love sweetness and light, especially sweetness. I am sorry to say that all is not well in so-called prosperous, wealthy, and powerful America. We have moved a long way and are now moving further and more rapidly down the soul-destroying road of socialism. The evidence is clear, shockingly clear, for all to see. With our national prestige at or near an embarrassing all-time low, we continue to weaken our domestic economy by unsound fiscal, economic, and foreign aid policies which corrupt our national currency with the crass unconstitutional usurpation of power by the executive branch of the federal government anti-spiritual decisions of the supreme court all apparently approved by a weekly submissive rubber stamp congress the days ahead are ominously frightening it is imperative that American citizens become alerted and informed regarding the threat to our welfare, happiness, and freedom. No American is worthy of citizenship in this great land who refuses to take an active interest in these important matters. Stand up for, for freedom, no matter what the cost. It can help to save your soul and maybe your country. May God give us the wisdom to recognize the danger, the dangers of complacency, the threat to our freedom, and the strength to meet this danger courageously.
1: I think the bigger lesson here is that sometimes what somebody is warning you about is coming, but takes a long time to fully get to where they're actually telling you we're headed. You heard warnings about destroying the value of our currency, destroying the value of our prestige and ability to uh, have diplomatic influence. uh, And really, that means being able to have influence in the world apart from force. We still have a monopoly on force in the world, really, with some of what we're able to do. But we don't have a lot of influence just because we have goodwill influence or, or soft power, as it's called. You heard about the dangers of socialism and, and where it would lead a nation that once was proud and that the days ahead of us were dark. And this was in 1965. And for those of you that remember Reagan's morning in America and how things were you know, apparently better back then and the 90s booms and uh, some good times even fairly recently, it may seem like, well, this guy was maybe not right. He was dead on. Because as I've told you, this... Collapse this economic disaster, this monetary event horizon, this 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 disaster of uh, debt, is not something that's happening now. It's something that's been happening for decades, and it really ramped up about 1970, 1971, and it really became evident in '75 when when dollars were allowed to be spent on gold again, and we saw the decoupling uh, and the true damage that had been done by inflation between FDR and Richard Nixon that was hidden because of the gold window and the gold manipulation. And that means that the real current spiral, was a very slow spiral inward, and if you haven't listened to my show on the Monetary Event Horizon, you should go listen to that, um, where times look bad and then good, and bad and then good as you circle the event horizon, as you head into oblivion, And you, at one day, things are really bad, and then you kind of come around the other side, and the effects of gravity are a little different, uh, and you've got a long way to go till you go down the hole. But that spiral then started about five years after this man gave this speech. And there's some things that I'd like to drive home about what he said. I loved it when he said, "You basically, you're not worthy of your citizenship if you won't pay attention to what's going on, and if you won't stand up and fight for freedom. I don't care who you vote for. I don't care if you vote. That's not what I mean when I say that. But standing, taking a stand for your own personal liberty is the number one thing that you can do today. And I think it is if you want to have value in your 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 citizenship of this country or any other, then that citizenship comes at a cost. Rights come with concurrent responsibilities. And what I would challenge you today is to see where you can better exercise your responsibilities so that you can retain as many of the rights as you should have. I'm not saying you're not entitled to them. I'm not saying they shouldn't be there. Rights inherently are something you're entitled to by the fact that you exist. They're considered granted from your creator by the founding documents of your nation if you're an American. They're not subject to government interpretation. The government's been basically called hands-off, yet they've put their hands on an awful lot. If we are to stop the erosion and stop losing more, then we have to take a stand, and if not here and if not now, then when and where, I ask you. Will you leave it for your children to do, or will you do it for yourself today so that they can look back as we've looked back at former generations and say, they showed us what to do, they were the example or will you be a missing link will you be a generation gap and I'm speaking to those of you my age and much younger alike I don't know how big the gap can be it can be two or three generations I'm calling for it to stop I'm calling for us all to stand up and be self-reliant if we can do that we can head off a lot of the disaster that's coming it's still coming we're still gonna deal with it but are we gonna deal with it by making a deal with the devil himself who, who is the the people, it's a metaphorical devil, again, this is not religious. The people that did this are the ones that are going to offer you the deal when it falls apart. They're going to offer to come in and buy your house and give it back to you for less money. They're the ones that are going to do this crap. Or are you going to be able to stand up and have the moral integrity and fortitude to say, I'll look after myself, my family, and my community. And thank you. Please go away and bother somebody else. And if you can't go away nicely, we'll make you go away. Who will you be in this uncertain future? Will you leave the gap, or will you be the example? And with that, this has been Jack Go with another edition of Survival Podcast. Helping you figure out how to live that better life when times get tough, or even if they don't. Seeing our food
0: these days, you know it's on our TVs. Sometimes we forget. I could do if the price we pay, I guess we follow all the rules. There's a better way to do this. Let me show you a better. of up there care